If you have a copy of God's Word, I invite you to turn to the Gospel of John. That's the fourth book of the New Testament, the Gospel of John, and chapter 13. Uh, We're in a series of sermons in the Gospel of John. We took a break over the summer uh, to address some other things and then came back to the Gospel of John in chapter 13, verse 1, last week. Uh, And we acknowledged last time that there is a transition that really does take place in the Gospel of John, and John's Gospel account is narrative when you get to chapter 13. In the first 12 chapters, we have recorded the public ministry of Jesus, Uh, and, and it really covers, in terms of time, about three years to three and a half years. He's out among the crowds. He's out among His opponents. He's with His disciples. He's performing various signs and miracles among the people. But that all changes when you get to chapter 13, beginning in verse 1. Now we're in the final hours of Jesus' life. He is uh, maybe just about 24 hours from His death. He's in the upper room now, and He's just with His disciples, no longer out and about among the crowds, no longer with His opponents, no longer with the Jewish people. He's with His intimates, with His disciples, with those who He's called out of the world. And we have in chapters 13 through 17 some of the most precious and intimate and wonderful disclosures of the heart of the Lord Jesus to His people. The wonder of it all is that it's not limited to those 12 men sitting there, save Judas, uh, but it's for us as well, disciples of His now in this day and age. So please follow along as I read this morning. I want to read verses 1 through 20 of John 13. Now, before the feast of Passover, when Jesus knew that His hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved His own who were in the world, He loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray Him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into His hands, that He had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside His outer garments. And taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterwards you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, the one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. Verse 12, when he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I'm not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the Scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I am telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. 
Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. I want you to imagine, if you would, maybe especially those of you who are children, uh, but all of us, uh, to imagine uh, that you have been a disciple of the Lord Jesus, you've known Him, you've walked with Him, uh, that perhaps you were one of those who back in John 1 were first called to be one of Jesus' disciples, like Peter and like Andrew, Nathaniel, John, that you're one of the disciples of Jesus, and, and He's invited you personally to follow Him, and in faith you have followed Him, and you've been with Him for a few years now, uh, walking with Him, serving with Him, observing and witnessing all the things that Jesus said and did. You were there uh, when Jesus turned water into wine at the wedding in Cana in Galilee. Uh, You were there when Jesus healed the man uh, who was paralyzed for 38 years and was made miraculously to walk. Uh, Perhaps you were there that moment when Jesus healed the man who was born blind and who saw for the first time. Maybe you were at the tomb when Jesus rose Lazarus from the dead. You saw a dead man walk, a man who had been in the tomb for four days, now alive and eating dinner with his friends and family. You've been with the Lord Jesus, and you've, you've heard His teachings, and you've observed His manner, and you've observed Him, listened to Him. I want you to imagine now that you're here in this upper room. You know where this is going. Jesus is, is going to die. This is His last meal with His disciples. He's preparing them for His departure. You're there in that upper room with Jesus and those 12 men. Now, what would you expect it to be like? You're there. What's the atmosphere? What is, what is Jesus saying? What is Jesus doing? What's the, the ethos in the room? I'll tell you one thing for sure. If you had been with Jesus for those three and a half years, and you were contemplating the very grave things that were about to take place, you would be laser-focused on Jesus, observing every action, hanging on every word. What's He like? What does He do? What does He say? Well, we don't have to use our imagination. We don't have to wonder uh, what those hours in that room were like, because we have with us an eyewitness account, a man who was there. I'm speaking, of course, of the Apostle John, who's recorded this account. He brings us into the upper room, into the inner sanctum, and he tells us what Jesus said and what Jesus did and what his most intimate moments with his disciples was like. And we're meant to enter into these moments as followers of the Lord Jesus. Remember, these things have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. So John said in chapter 20, verse 31, so let's enter into these spaces and these moments and these hours by faith and seek to discover and learn everything we can about the heart of Christ and everything we can about His will for our lives as His disciples. So this morning, as we look at John 13, 1 through 20, I want us to look at Jesus from two angles. I think in these verses, there's, there's two sort of layers of meaning. There's, there's this work being done of washing feet, and there's words that Jesus is saying, and there's two things going on. I think we can see this 
Are these two layers at work? In Jesus' two uses of the word understand. So, so looking at verse 7, uh, Jesus tells Peter, look, you don't presently understand this, what's going on. There's a, an inner significance, an inner meaning in all of this that you, won't, you don't understand from your current vantage point, but afterward you will understand. But you don't understand this now. That's one layer of, of meaning. And then in verse 12, the second usage of that word understand, Jesus asks them after he washes their feet, do you understand what I have done for you? And the assumption seems to be that they should understand. There's another layer of meaning here. There's something they were meant to see that was obvious and was apparent and was just hanging there on the surface for all to see. And Jesus says, do you understand? He wants them to understand. But then there's this this other thing going on here, this inner meaning, this other layer of meaning that they could not have understood from this vantage point that we can from where we stand with a completed gospel account. And it's those two angles I want to look at this morning. So we'll just consider two main headings in this text. Jesus, our example, and Jesus, our Savior. Those are the two angles. I want to see Jesus, our example, and Jesus, our Savior. Why is He washing the disciples' feet? What's going on here? What's, what's the meaning? What are we meant to see in what's going on? One reason is plainly stated in the passage. Verse 15 says, I have given you an example. So we'll consider Jesus our example. The other reason requires us to go a little bit beyond the passage, and we'll see this second layer of meaning in a minute. But first consider with me, Jesus, our example. Now, I feel the need to to say this up front. There is a school of preaching, a school of reading the Bible, that immediately objects to the sort of preaching that holds forth Jesus as an example for us to follow. So, so that there are some who think, look, if, if you're talking about the ministry of Jesus, what He did and what He said, and if, if you're commending to people His example, saying, look, we need to be like Jesus and do as He has done, that's somehow anti-gospel. Uh, that Jesus didn't come to be our example, He came to be our Savior. He came to do those very things that we cannot do. He came to achieve for us a certain righteousness that we could never have or achieve or attain. And so if you're, if you're preaching Jesus in such a way that you're saying, hey, do like Him, follow His example, you're missing the point altogether because Jesus is not principally our example. He's our Savior. All right, that perspective is completely misgiven. That is a perspective foreign to the Bible. We, we must recover in our day an appreciation that of course Jesus is our Savior. Of course He does things that none of us could do. Of course He goes to the cross and suffers the wrath of God in a substitutionary work of atonement. But He also is our Lord, is He not? He's also the Master. He's also the Teacher. And He Himself says in this text, you couldn't be more plain, in verse 14, if I then, your Lord and Teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. So it's not legalism to say, let's go see what Jesus did and let's endeavor to follow His example. It's not dead moralism uh, to say, I want to study Jesus, I want to study His model, and I want to live my life more like the Lord Jesus. Christ's likeness, following Christ's example, is commended to us in the Scriptures. It's commended us in this passage. A large part of what Jesus is doing is 
I'm your master, I'm your teacher, this is what I'm doing, and now imitate me. You might think of when you were in school. Uh, I don't know that they teach handwriting anymore, but, but those of you who learned handwriting, penmanship is what we called it back in the day, you would be, you have your teacher next to you, and you're trying to write in cursive, and, and, and she would, or he would write the letters in cursive, and, and you would sort of sketch what they've done, try to imitate what the, the teacher has done. That's the idea here in this text. Jesus the teacher, Jesus the master, and He's showing us how it's done. He's giving us a model, an example for us to imitate. So it's wholly appropriate that as, as we witness the example of Jesus, we lean in and say, what's the master like? How is it done? What does service and humility and love look like? Because I want to imitate my master, my Lord, my teacher uh, in this. Now, there's a way to preach Jesus as Savior in this passage. I must preach Jesus as a Savior in this passage. I've not said enough if I only point to Jesus' example here, but at the same time, I've not begun to preach this passage until I've commended Jesus' example. So there's a way to preach Jesus as Savior from this passage, but it's not by eradicating the example that's set forth for us. Jesus wants us to follow His example, so that's this first heading, Jesus, our example. And all I want us to do is look at three aspects of the Lord's humility and His service to His disciples and commend them to you as ways we can imitate the Lord Jesus as those who are His disciples, those called to follow Him. So three aspects of the Lord's humble service here. Number one, Christ-like service involves a laying aside of rights and privileges. Christ-like service, if you want to do it like the master, like the teacher, Christ-like service involves a laying aside of rights and privileges. Now, where do we see this in Jesus' example? Look with me at verse 3. Jesus knowing that the Father had given all things into His hands, and that He had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. Now, how would you complete the sentence, complete the thought? Well, He subdued Satan and cast him out, and He destroyed Judas, and He wielded all that mighty power and that authority that was His by divine fiat, by divine right, and He asserted Himself as King over all. But that's not what we read. That's how you and I would act. But we read, knowing that the Father had given all things into His hands, so He's got all power, that He had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper, He laid aside His outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around His waist. Then He poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with a towel that was wrapped around Him. The idea is that Jesus had all authority and all power. He he knew where He came from. This this was the Word who was with God in the beginning, the agent of God in creation and in revelation and in salvation. He, he, He knew He had come from God. He knew He was going back to God, to that station of authority and power and adoration and praise and worship. He would take that highest station. And the point of the text is that it is with that knowledge with that knowledge of the high station from which He came and to which He was returning, the cosmic authority and power He possessed. It's with that knowledge that He lays it all down 
and assumes the posture of the most lowly of servants. As Jesus is thinking about his rights, his privilege, his authority, his status as the very Son of God, the King over all creation, what's in his heart? What does he, what does he do in the contemplation of his authority and power? He takes off his outer garments. He ties a towel around his waist. He gets on his knees and he scrubs the dirty feet of his sinful disciples. That's amazing. There's a very famous text that should be read alongside John 13. It's found in Philippians 2. Can I ask that you turn there? Philippians chapter 2, it should be read in, in tandem with John 13. Philippians 2 is one of the most important texts in the Bible about the Lord Jesus. And some of your minds maybe have already gone here. Uh, let's look at Philippians 2 verses 3 through 7. Paul writing now is writing to Christians, writing to a church much like ours. He says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Verse 4, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, or was also in Christ Jesus. Verse 6, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. He emptied himself. He took off the outer robe of divine glory and put on the rags of humanity and of servanthood. To use the language of John 13, he took off his outer garment, the sign and the signal of his dignity and his station and his status as the rabbi, as the head of the group. He took off his outer garment. He laid aside his power and his authority. Very simply, what we should learn here from Jesus' example is that a laying aside of privileges and rights, of prestige and power in the service of others is inherently Christ-like. It's inherently honoring to God and in keeping with the example of our Master and our Lord. Christian service involves a laying aside of our rights and privileges in service to others. Listen, the wonder of this event, the great display of His humility is not that He, he got on their level and became their equal or something like that. The wonder of it all is that though He's not their equal, He's very God of very God, He actually gets down below them and serves them and provides them with an example of humility. Think of the implications of this truth for all those who are in positions of leadership and authority. The Lord Jesus, the one who, who has everything in His hands, who had come from God and who was going back to God, could condescend to wipe the feet of the disciples. How should those of us who have influence and authority in our families, in our jobs, in the church, how should we behave with the authority entrusted to us? We see here that this is an essential trait of godly leadership, a laying aside of privilege and power to serve others. Humble service to others is a definitive trait of godly leadership. You are not a Christ-like leader if you're not a humble Christ-like servant. And this is the model that's set for us by the Lord Jesus. This is how He led, with humility, laying aside His status and His power and His authority. The point is, He had rights. He had privileges. It was 
within his status and within his power to exert that authority over people, but he doesn't exercise it. He lays it aside in the service of others. And then he says to them in verse 13, John 13, you call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. I am above you. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. If washing the feet of the disciples wasn't below Jesus, well, then is anything below us? We should have this mind that was in Christ Jesus. Every person I interact with, Every person that comes into the sphere of my acquaintance qualifies for my love and for my humble service. There's no one in this church uh, who's below you. Uh, There's no one in this church, in the world even, who you cannot condescend to serve in imitation of the example of the Lord Jesus. The very simple point is if He could condescend from such a position of power to serve us, well, then no one is too low for us to condescend to serve. All of us, and you might say especially those who are in positions of authority and power and leadership, should be marked by humble servanthood, by a laying aside of privilege and power in the pursuit of the good of others. That's the clear message from John 13. Humble servant leadership, Christ-like leadership, servant leadership involves a laying aside of privilege and prestige. But now secondly, second way in which we're meant to imitate the master. Christ-like service requires that we assume a lowly posture before others. We don't just step aside from the place of privilege. We actually assume a lowly posture being below others in service to them. We see this in verse 4, Jesus rose from supper. He laid aside His outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around His waist. Then He poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around Him. We don't see this as clearly um, with 21st century eyes, but essentially Jesus is dressing like a slave. Taking off the outer garment, garment of the rabbi, Tying a towel around his waist would have been shocking to those disciples sitting there. And what's even more shocking, he then kneels down and takes the posture of a slave, of a humble servant, before men who would appear to then be his betters, to be those who were above him in superiority. The simple lesson is this. Christian service, Christ-like service, requires us to go low to get our hands dirty in service to others. It involves not just laying aside the outer garments, it requires that we take the towel. It requires that we don it around our waist. Service requires us to pour water into a basin and to stoop low at others' feet to wash them. The point is Jesus had to assume a lowly posture, the posture of a servant. He had to stoop down. He had to go low. He couldn't remain on their level if He was going to do this for them, if He was going to serve them. Christ-like service requires that we go low like our Lord and that we be ready like Him to assume a lowly posture before others. So, so in Christian service, in our service toward one another, it is a commitment to take the posture of a, 
an actual servant, we could even say a slave, in service to the other person. It means inherently, I count your needs and your comfort and your well-being and your good as more important than my own. That's a Christian way to think. I consider you more significant than myself. Your interests are more important than my own. That's what Philippians 2 said, verse 3, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. It's not just that I say, okay, okay, okay. I'll treat you like my equal. We're actually supposed to treat others as more significant than ourselves. Like, like your good, your comfort, your well-being is a greater priority to me than my own. Verse 4, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. We should think this way toward our fellow Christians. We should think this way toward our spouses. We should think this way uh, toward the people we have in our homes. We should think this way toward the people we work with and interact with. His needs are more important than my needs. Her interests and her good are of greater significance than my own. When we possess that sort of mind toward others, that way of thinking, it's then that we're very much like our Savior. Christ-like service requires that we assume a lowly posture before others. Now, third and finally, looking at the example of Jesus, Christ-like service involves meeting the actual needs of others. Christ-like service involves meeting the actual needs of others. Now, maybe this point is just too obvious, but I think it's worth noting. Jesus is not theoretically serving them. He's not symbolically serving them. He's doing something that needed doing. Actual dirt on actual feet. Job needs to be done. He condescends to do it. It's interesting, isn't it? In, in, in church settings, often people talk about wanting to serve. I want to serve in the church. Oh, I serve in the church. I serve at this church, that church. I want to serve in the church. And sometimes what that means is um, I want space created, a platform created for me to exercise my gifts and to be applauded. I, I love to sing. I have a gift to sing. And I want to serve the church with my singing, so can you give me a microphone, please? I really, I really feel called to serve. I, I, I'm a very good public speaker. I have talents in that area, so I need a class to teach. That's not the Christian idea of service. Christian service is doing those things that no one wants to do. Dirty feet. Smelly diapers, uh, serving in maybe unseen and unpublic ways, doing those things that require us to take a lowly posture and to meet actual practical needs. Service in the church, serving, ministering among the body, is not creating a platform to display your own gifts. It's finding opportunities, having eyes for the practical, actual needs of the congregation and meeting those needs. This is one of the reasons why. why we're not huge fans here at Emmanuel of spiritual gift inventories, okay? Have you ever seen those gift inventories, like what are you especially good at? Okay, great, let's find a way to let you do that really good thing that you're good at in the context of the church. It's not totally inappropriate, not totally wrong, but, but, but it often works this way, especially in our setting in a smaller church, church plant. The thing that's really needed is maybe the thing that you're like seventh or eighth best at on your inventory there. You know, like, like no one, no one uh, gets medals for changing diapers particularly well, 
No one's going to sign. I'm just really good at that. I just have the method down. Give me a diaper to change. Jesus stooped down to wash actual dirt on actual feet to meet an actual need. And so when we think about serving in the church, we should think about, okay, where are the needs among the body? Not just on Sunday mornings, though there's things that need to be done on Sunday mornings, but, but who needs encouragement? Who needs to be invited into our home? Uh, who needs a meal cooked for them? Uh, who needs to be visited in the hospital? Who's being neglected? Uh, how, how, how can I uh, inconvenience myself and, and take a lowly posture towards someone else and work for their good and for their encouragement and for their well-being? That's service. What it means to serve others? Actual dirt, actual feet, actual needs in actual people's lives. How can I condescend to help others, to be an encouragement to others, to be a blessing to others? And am I willing to condescend and to take a lowly posture in that effort to serve others? Well, there you have it. These aren't profound points at all. Just looking at what Jesus did, observing things about His example, and trying to follow His example. It's not alchemy. It's not rocket science. Christ-like service involves a laying aside of rights and privileges. Christ-like service requires that we assume a lowly posture before others. And thirdly, Christ-like service involves meeting the actual needs of others. This is Jesus, our example. The purpose of this passage, Jesus says, is for us to imitate Him in this. He's the teacher. He's the master. I provided an example for you, He says, and we're to follow Him in this and be like Him. Jesus is very concerned, brother, sister, disciple. He's very concerned for how you live. He's very concerned for the message that your life communicates. He considers you and every true disciple a representative, an ambassador that, that is, is representing something of the Lord Jesus. That's where this passage goes. And that becomes the big issue for Jesus in this passage. Verse 16, truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Like, you're a messenger. Your life communicates a message. What message is your life communicating? Because that message is saying something about the one who sent the messenger. Verse 20, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me. When someone receives you, one sent by the Savior, they're receiving Christ. That's his expectation. Well, what are we modeling, conveying by the way we live our lives. And then, of course, verse 35, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples. You have love for one another. See, we, we communicate something by the way we live. People are expecting to see in us something resembling Jesus' example, Jesus' model. We are ambassadors of Jesus. We're sent by Jesus. This is how we represent Him. When people look at us, do they see a picture of what Jesus must be like. Listen, that's one of the reasons why health, wealth, and prosperity preachers are so destructive. Uh, the, 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 the sort of preachers that ask for your money and they buy planes and cars and take advantage of people, that's so destructive because that's not what Jesus is like. He's not that way. They're misrepresenting Him. That's why we get so animated about that. But it's not just health, wealth, and prosperity preachers. It's abusive pastors who, 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 who are too busy promoting their own careers to visit people in the hospital. 
get down and wash dirty feet. It's, it's dictatorial husbands who have forgotten that the very function of husbanding well involves laying down your life for your spouse. To be like the master, Christ is the example. Like, I have, you're more important than me. Your honor is a bigger priority than my own. It's heavy-handed parents who exasperate their children and forget that as models of the Lord Jesus, ambassadors of Christ, they're to serve their kids. It's not below parents to wash their kids' dirty feet, whether they're two years old or 16 years old. You're providing an example of who Jesus is supposed to be. It's bosses and Christians out in the marketplace who lord their authority over others and have forgotten how to serve others. It's people in Christian communities who forget how to show hospitality, how to visit those who are sick, how to give money to Christians who are in actual need. In all these things, we misrepresent our Savior. If we're not like Him and condescending to serve others, Our Lord and Master is the one who hours before His death took off His outer garments and assumed the posture of a servant. How should those who follow such a Master conduct themselves? Well, brothers and sisters, we have countless opportunities before us to show forth the character and example and model of our Savior to others. So let us be known as the kind of Christ-like servants who lay aside their rights and privileges in service to others, who assume a lowly posture in service to others, and who meet the actual needs of those God has put in our lives. Now, that's Jesus the example. And I spent most of our time there because that's where Jesus spends most of His time in this passage. But there is another layer of meaning. There's something deeper and richer that we're meant to see about Jesus. I don't want to move past the example. Important. We must follow His example. Like I said earlier, I've not preached the text until I've commended Jesus' example, but there's another layer of meaning here, something else we're meant to see about Jesus, and that is secondly, Jesus our Savior. Now, where do we see that? Well, we have to start with an explanation of verses 6 through 11. You notice I didn't say anything about those verses, just sort of Skipped over those verses. What's going on in verses 6 through 11? Can I read them again for you? He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. After what? After his death and resurrection. Which we're in the afterward, so we should be able to understand this. Peter couldn't then, but we should now, and that's what we want to do. Verse 8, Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, the one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. What on earth is going on in this interchange? Do you know what Jesus is talking about? You've been washed, you've been bathed, but but not completely, you still need your feet washed. What is he talking about? I don't actually know, okay? I'll just put all my cards on the table. But I have an opinion. I have a guess of what I think Jesus is communicating here. 
Follow the logic of the passage, okay? Uh, Jesus clearly communicates people need to be washed in order to be clean, right? He says that in verse 8. Peter doesn't want his feet washed. He says, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. That's always true. If you want to be on board with Jesus, you need to be washed of your sins. You need to be cleansed, okay? You need washing in order to be clean. But then he says of Peter, you have been bathed. It's a perfect passive participle. This has happened in the past, Peter, with ongoing implications for your life now. You were washed previously. You've been bathed. You were cleansed already, which I understand to be a reference to the new birth, regeneration. Like, you've been saved, Peter. You've been regenerated. You've been born again. You've been cleansed by God's Spirit, made right with God. But then he says in verse 10, the one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet. Except for his feet. You're completely clean, Peter. You've been bathed. But you still have this ongoing need to have your feet washed. And the question is, what is that? Tracking with me? So, So you're clean, Peter. You've been bathed. But you still need to have your feet washed. This is what I think is going on there. Uh, The idea is, Peter, look, you have had faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, repented of sins, been given the gift of the new birth, you've been regenerated, you've been converted, you've been changed and saved and cleansed. But you still have sins, Peter. You still need to keep going back to Christ. Not for that initial cleansing by which we're made right with God and washed of our sins in the blood of Christ, but you need that ongoing cleansing like in... 1 John 1, verse 9, if, if we say we don't sin, we make God to be a liar and the truth is not in us. We still sin. Believers still sin. But if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Wash our feet. Cleanse us afresh. Not that initial cleansing whereby we were converted and first washed and first made children of God, but that sort of ongoing cleansing. We, we need fresh grace always, fresh forgiveness always to go again and again to the throne of grace asking that the Lord Jesus would cleanse us from our, our ongoing sin. I think that's something of what's going on here in those verses. And so the idea is, Peter, you, you need a Savior. You need to be washed. You don't just need my example. You need cleansing. That initial cleansing and that ongoing cleansing, which, Peter, I'm going to do for you. And if I don't do it for you, you you have no part with me. You can't be right with me, Peter, unless you submit to my cleansing. Unless we're honest, Peter, you and I, about your sins and your need of a Savior. If we can't get on that level, then we have no relationship. You have no part with me. That's what I see going on in verses 6 through 11. But there's a far more obvious way, I think, in which we see Jesus as Savior from this passage. Not in this passage, but from this passage. The idea is this. Jesus didn't stop at washing their feet. He doesn't stop with the foot washing. Like this is not the greatest length that Jesus goes to in service to His disciples. This is not the climax or the fulcrum or the peak of His humiliation before His disciples. He's going to get lower than stooping down and washing their feet. He's going to go to the grave. The servant master will become the servant savior. 
He's going to die for them. So, so this foot washing is like a down payment of the way in which Jesus will serve these disciples. It's a pattern of behavior. Jesus humbling Himself in service to those who need Him. We see it in the foot washing, but we're going to see it in the most profound and striking way in Him going to the cross for them. He's going to do a whole lot more than washing dirt from their feet. He's going to wash sin from their soul by His blood, by His work on the cross. Jesus won't just stoop low with water and with a basin. He'll be lifted up on a cross. He'll be killed, be buried in the grave, and He'll rise again for their justification and for their salvation and for their sin. The servant master becomes the servant savior. That is the greatest display of Jesus' humiliation before His disciples. And we're to understand even that love, the love that goes to those lengths of laying down your life for someone else, even that love is to be imitated in our relationship with one another. Like we should do more than just washing one another's feet, making meals for each other, praying for each other. We should lay down our lives for one another because the Scriptures say, let this mind be in you that was also in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by, coming, by becoming obedient, not to the point of washing feet, but to the point of death, even the death on the cross. And this mind that led the Lord Jesus to die for the sins of His people, it's to be in us as well. This same mind should be in husbands and wives, dying to self, dying to our own interests to serve the good of the other. This mind should be in parents and in children, in bosses and in employees, in professors and students, in pastors and deacons, missionaries and church planters. This mind should be in Sunday school teachers and small group leaders, in ushers and AV booth workers, in worship leaders, in musicians, in nursery workers, in children's ministry coordinators, in every one of us, in every disciple of the Master. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though He was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied Himself by taking the form of of a servant. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we pray that you would make us to be examples to others of our Savior, Christ-like servants who condescend to serve one another and thereby show forth by example the character of our Savior, the Lord Jesus. We thank You, Father, that in Your Son You've condescended not just to our feet, but to the earth, to the grave, for the salvation of our sins. Lord, make us to be like You in every way. We say as servants, we're not above our Master. As pupils and disciples, we're not above our 